to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Bullock. People, organizations, and communities need to prepare for and respond to natural and man-made disasters in a timely manner and in the most effective way possible. Our program examines what is being done before, during, and after a disaster and those unexpected events to keep you in the know. Disasters can happen to anyone. The question is, when will it happen to you? Now, here is your host, business continuity and disaster planning expert, Alex Fulick. Welcome to another episode of Preparing for the Unexpected. I'm your host, Alex Fulick, and as always, we like to talk about things related to resilience, business continuity, COVID, well-being, emergency management, anything that's relatable to those topics. Speaking of topics, if there is something you'd like us to talk about on the show, or you'd like to be a guest, please feel free, reach out to LinkedIn. You can find me there. I am the only Alex Fulick, so I'm really easy to find. Send me a message, and I do return all messages. A couple of other quick updates. I will be speaking at three conferences later this year. Continuity Insights, October 4th to 6th in Minneapolis. Hopefully I can travel for that one. Business Continuity World Virtual, November 3rd and 4th. And in Toronto, the Continuity Resilience Today Conference, December 1st and 2nd. Now today, you may recognize my guest. We're going to, uh, as we always do, give a quick update about COVID, but we're going to change gears a little bit today. We're going to talk about what the pandemic means for our industry, the business continuity industry, and we're also going to talk about a paper Regina wrote uh, regarding um, the true value of a business continuity or return on investment, or as she calls it, value on investment. Did I get the title right? You did. Very good. Okay. <laughs> I actually didn't look at the title. It's on the wrong side here. Oh, busted. Busted. Exactly. So I want to welcome to the show, as you can tell, my uh, regular chat with Regina Phelps. Regina, welcome back. You know, Alex, it is such a great delight. I can't believe it's already been another month, but here we are, right? And yeah, yeah. we're still having a little conversation on COVID, but not the entire time this time. But That's yeah. right. We, we, we do have some good news today. Yes, we do have good news. Let, let's tackle that stuff right away and get to get to COVID. Great. What, what's happening in the world? Well, you know, Alex, it is a mixed bag, as you well know, because you and I both live in North America. <clears throat> Here in the United States, our numbers have dropped precipitously, which is great. However, there is an interesting change here in the U.S. just slightly, and that is that we have dropped really substantially over the last two months. However, uh, we've actually hit a plateau. It's a low plateau for us, which is about 14,000 cases a day, but it is stopped. And so the question will be, well, why is that? And of course, us, like many parts of the world, are being inundated by the Delta variant, which of course is the B1617.2, um, which came originally from India. And that is now about 10% of our cases. Now, we don't do as much genetic sequencing as we really should or could, I suppose. So it's perhaps a lot more than 10%. But that particular strain of the coronavirus is about twice as more effect infective as the UK variant, which is now known as Alpha, B117. And it is also um, more deadly. Mm -hmm. So what we're expecting to see here in the States is that there are pockets of the U.S. where vaccine acceptance is not as high and where vaccine rates are not as good. Now, I live in San Francisco. We just passed 70% of everyone over the age of 12 in San Francisco was vaccinated. Wow. And 80, so actually it's 80% 80 has been vaccinated with at least one dose and 70% is fully vaccinated. So we have amazing numbers, which is really great. Mm. People still walk around here with masks on, which is, I guess we're just a cautious type. But there are places in the United States where the vaccine uptake is below 40%, below 30% in some places. And if you look at the United States map, you can see kind of up in the, in the western, north, northern part of the United States. So Idaho, Montana, Montana, Wyoming, kind of a cluster of those, you know, a couple of those on your border um, mm -hmm. are not as welcoming of the vaccine. That's problematic. 
Uh, and then we also see that in the southern parts of the United States. So kind of the, you know, Mississippi, uh, Arkansas, uh, mm-hmm. Louisiana, that sort of section uh, up into other parts of the, um, like Tennessee, et cetera. So those parts are very likely to have some spikes because they don't have enough vaccine uptake. So that will, we'll be looking at hospitalizations and case counts in those particular states. So in the United States, we're really doing well. Tell me about Canada before we talk about the rest of the world. What are you guys doing up there? Well, we're kind of in the same boat that uh, you just went through. Um, we are on an upswing. We do have a couple of small pockets um, with um, some uh, issues, shall we say. Mm-hmm. And just like America or anywhere in the world, we've got our people who don't want to be vaccinated or say the whole thing's a hoax, you know, so we have a few pockets of that, but um, in in comparison to other areas, uh, it's a lot less. Right. Um, So our our numbers are, well, because they relate to illnesses and deaths, none of them are are good, no matter what they are. Mm -hmm. Uh, So deaths we've hit, oddly enough, we've hit 26,000 on the nose. Mm -hmm. Uh, according to the website. Cases, we've had 1,405,000 plus. And now for some good news, over the last week or two, hospitalizations are down 17%, which is good. New cases are down 28%. Mm -hmm. Active cases are down 31%. And deaths are down 32%. That's fabulous. That's really good. Yeah, considering we had, you know, a really bad time there for a while, um, we're trending positively, which is nice. We do have two areas, uh, Nunavut and uh, I believe it's Yukon. Uh, I believe it's those two uh, territories. Yeah, Nunavut and Yukon are having a bit of an uptick right now. And from what I read, the problem is with people that are not vaccinated have suddenly decided to have all these large gatherings. Mm-hmm. So not sure because both of those territories are looking good when it comes to vaccination rates. Mm-hmm. But those that don't have it are the ones causing the, the uptick at the moment and causing some challenges for up there. What about, was it Manitoba that had a, a big outbreak? It was, it was someplace I thought in the Man- middle of a big outbreak have, and, and yeah, was running yeah. out of oxygen, which was like, oh my gosh, it sounds yeah. too long. They had a big uh, uptick as well. And according to the website now, they seem to be getting over that hump and now coming down the other side. Mm-hmm. So that's good for them. You know, I'm glad they're not uh, still going up. Vaccines, I think the last time we talked about the vaccine rate, we were at 49%. We were going to eclipse the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, that day, that was the estimate. We're now up to almost 66% of having their first vaccines. Mm-hmm. And with fully vaccinated people, the last time I talked to you, we were about 4%. We're now at almost 15%. Wow, that's that's really good in a month. Yeah, so now that the first, uh, so many people have gone for the first shots, they're now really pushing for the Mm -hmm. second shot. Mm -hmm. There was a wait of up to, what was the um, 12 weeks, I think it was, they said uh, here, uh, for your second shot, well, they're now reducing that to eight weeks. Mm-hmm. So now, because the first shots have been uh, going up and those numbers are heading up, they're now pushing to get the second shots into mm-hmm. everybody. Um, Do you so saw restrictions? Do you saw restrictions in areas? Because m- much of the United States is just wide open, which is probably going to also potentially increase our case count now that everybody's thrown the door open and say, yeah, come on out. Uh, right. As far as I know, there are no more restrictions. Mm-hmm. Uh, here in Ontario, where I live, the last restrictions um, uh, ended on the June 2nd. And now uh, there, there's limited uh, things that are available. Only patios are open. Um, I, you know, it's less than 50% capacity. Um, you can't have groups more than, you know, four or something. Mm-hmm. So there, there's those restrictions. Uh, that's going to last for about three, four weeks. If it goes well, numbers are not going up then they will start opening up other uh, sections and a different, uh, you know, maybe indoor dining at reduced capacity, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, so far, fingers crossed. Okay. I still have, I'm cautiously optimistic, but I still have the concern that a lot of people will think, oh, because numbers are going down, things are opening. Now I can do what I want. 
Right. And they just go back and do what they did before. And before you know it, we have an uptick again. Right. So I'm just afraid of that happening here. I don't know exactly what's happening in different parts of the country, but it's relatively the same sort of thing, a very staggered uh, approach to opening. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's certainly what we've seen in the U.S. And, and certainly, I think... Um, People are very concerned, just as you are, that uh, as the numbers continue to drop, uh, that people are going to become reckless. And, and for example, here in California, we just have opened up the state. Um, whoa, opened it up. And so the mask requirements have really dropped in many places. Um, and so the concern, of course, is you're supposed to be masked at all times if you're not vaccinated. But, you know, there's the, that's the honor system. And so the concern is that you're going to have people that are not going to be um, vaccinated and are not going to be masked. Yeah. The other issue that's really hot here in the U.S. Uh, before we talk about the world, and maybe this is uh, happening with you too, is the issue of mandated vaccines. So, I, and we hadn't mentioned this before, and I and I wanted to just touch on it. And I forgot about it, and that is that here in the United States, there's several lawsuits that have been either. Uh, uh, successfully adjudicated or, or in process about the requirement of employers mandating vaccines. Here in the U.S., the, uh, employers can can mandate a vaccine. They have to give religious exemptions and those people with certain health conditions. There was a lawsuit based on this mandate that the University of um, uh, Houston, the Methodist Houston Medical System, which has about 16,000 employees, uh, said that they required all of their employees to have the COVID vaccine. 200 or so employees refused, <clears throat> and they took them to court. Uh, a federal judge just ruled on this uh, Friday of last week, saying that, um, that their, first of all, their argument was ridiculous, because the argument was is that this is still a, a vaccine that's uh, not been formally approved because it still has just an EUA, emergency use authorization. Mm-hmm. And the, the, um, the uh, 200 employees that were suing said that they felt like they were being act, treated as guinea pigs. And the judge said, excuse me, but this has been given, you know, millions and millions and millions and millions of doses all over the world. You're not a guinea pig. And so uh, they threw that case out. There are several more that are pending, uh, but many people are feeling that that's going to happen without any difficulty that they will likely be tossed at as well. The reason I just want to sort of tag this on for North America in particular, which is where I think that you're going to see this initially, is that there'll be um, some interesting things going on in the workplace mm-hmm. where employers say you have to be ma- vaccinated. If you're not vaccinated, you must be masked. Or they may say you can't do certain jobs, like maybe be customer facing if you're not vaccinated. So I think what I would say is stay tuned. By the time we meet next month, I will bet there'll be a lot more synergy energy about this issue of vaccine mandates, mm-hmm. uh, because I expect that a lot of employers uh, who are strongly encouraging it but not requiring it may actually move to the requiring it phase. Yeah, same thing up here. Same mm-hmm. thing is occurring up here. Mm-hmm. I know, mm-hmm. speaking for myself, I, I don't want to go into a room with a bunch of unvaccinated people. You know, no. My shot or not. I, you know, it's like Daniel walking into the lion's den. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. No, yeah. I feel exactly the same way. So let me just quickly talk about the world for, for yes. a moment. Um, you know, the thing about the world, what's going on is that it is still a very uneven terrain. And there are places all over the globe that are still suffering greatly. India finally is on a downtick from having an incredible high in April. Mm. Uh, But still, there are many places that are just on fire, Uh, Southeast Asia in particular, which had had no COVID for really any any amount of numbers to speak of for some length of time. Uh, So, you know, Vietnam, Thailand, Cambodia, Laos, Miramar, now it's just on fire. Why? Because of the Delta variant, the one from India. Same thing is happening in South America. Um, Peru just uh, increased their death toll by 100,000 people, um, which is hard to fathom. And that's really being driven by the other really hot variant, which is the P1, which is now called Gamma. Um, And so I I have a lot of clients in South America. And so in Argentina, in Chile, in Peru, in Colombia, they are just overwhelmed. And that hasn't changed. And Brazil is still on fire. Um, so I think there's, um, 
there's a lot of unevenness. And as the vaccine rollout continues to be slow globally, which is, it's, you know, the rest of the world's not going to get fully vaccinated until about 20, end of 2023 or 2024, that our chances of spinning off new variants and having this continue to be a problem is an issue, which also means, frankly, Alex, that our vaccines, if we're just being selfish instead of humanitarian, our vaccines could be at risk because the more variants that appear, some, some of them will become more creative and will be able to work around the existing vaccines. And that's, of course, the ultimate fear. No one knows if that's going to happen, but it could. Hopefully not. That 100,000 in Peru is sadly like wiping off the face of the earth, the city where my mom lives. Oh, my gosh, really? 100,000 people live there. So putting, putting that in perspective, it's like taking that whole city and killing everybody in it. Wow. You know, That's humbling, isn't it? <clears throat> it is. On that note, we've come to the end of our first segment. We are talking with Regina Phelps today. And when we come back, we'll be talking about what the pandemic means for our business continuity industry. We'll be right back. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at Voice America TRN or twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN. You are listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fuller. Email your questions to info at stone-road.com. Again, that's I-N-F-O at stone-road.com. Now back to Preparing for the Unexpected. Welcome back. Today we are talking with Regina Phelps. Regina, let's change gears a little bit. Uh, what does the panic, uh, panic, the pandemic mean? Well, I think that's interesting. Panic, pandemic, it all, it's all good. <laughs> what does the pandemic mean for the future of our uh, business continuity industry? What are your thoughts on that? You know, that's a great question. And I've actually been thinking about this for quite some time. And it's one of the current speeches I have in my, in my kind of Rolodex of, <clears throat> of talks that I've been doing. I think the, the concern I personally have about the pandemic is that executives in particular are looking at the pandemic as this once in a lifetime black swan event, which of course, as we all know, is not true, but it's so unique, so different. It was so cataclysmic that the need for traditional business continuity planning, as we all know it, is, isn't really required. So I've actually had some of my clients, large corporations, start to shrink their business continuity programs <clears throat> to put less funding into the programs overall, and to, to feel that those programs were helpful, perhaps with the pandemic, but because of everything we learned and the fact that we could work remotely for 18 months or whatever it is, that the need for a really fully robust business continuity program wasn't there. And there's several reasons for that. So first of all, when the pandemic occurred, it's, it's kind of what I call a slow boil, right? Now, mm -hmm. most people might not have been thinking it was a slow boil, but it started in January <clears throat> with China and other countries obviously locking down. But and you and I, I were talking about it in December. Yes, I know. December. I know. So, so then, you know, you look at the fact that, and now maybe not everybody got it excited about it like you and I did, but 
right? But certainly by March, everybody was activated on some level. Now, the thing about the pandemic is it's not like most crises that we deal with. An active shooter, a fire, an explosion, a tornado, a hurricane, an earthquake, sudden, dramatic, sudden loss of facilities, maybe people not being available, loss of technology, as we all know, blah, 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 which is what we, what we traditionally plan for. So people in my client population, they sort of slowly fell into this activation. Mm-hmm. And then when I asked most people, did you activate your business continuity plans? What do you think the answer was? I know, I know from experience, a lot of them said no. Right. Because was there a need to activate their business continuity plan? No, there was not a business interruption, right? Mm -hmm. So what happened is that, yeah, people scrambled and they worked themselves to death for, you know, however many days or hours or whatever to get everybody to be able to work remotely. And so a lot of lifting was done across the entire organization to make that happen, but it wasn't the activation of business continuity plans. Now they may have put more emphasis initially on the uh, departments and groups that had uh, short RTOs and RPOs, but they weren't activating those plans. So I think many executives begin to look at that and say, wow, okay, good. So a lot of people worked on this and we did a great job, but what about all those plans that we spent years developing and funding, et cetera? Mm-hmm. And so I've had people say, you know, maybe we don't need to do as much because in most parts of the world, the only industries that require this type of continuity planning, at least here in the States, are really just two. One is financial services and the second is healthcare, which is only a new requirement from the Joint Commission. So everybody else is doing it because it's the right thing to do, the smart thing to do, but it's not required. Mm -hmm. So I've already started to hear churn about that. So what do you think about that? I agree with you. I've been hearing the same thing. And it was interesting that some of that purging also was occurring at the beginning. Mm -hmm. And people before um, people were fully working at home, and we had settled into that mode of uh, operating that uh, on LinkedIn, I don't know if you saw them, but there were quite a few people saying, I've been let go today, you know, today was my last day. There was a bunch, you're right. There was a bunch at the beginning. And part of it was because of what you just said, you know, business continuity. The pandemic wasn't seen as a business continuity incident. Right. It it started off with either emergency management or HR taking over. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, if we're running the whole thing, creating all these policies, you know, and the only contingency that we're activating is work from home. Well, then, you know, why are you guys here? Right. However, and we've talked about this before, I think executives and a lot of other uh, leadership have forgotten that you can be in a pandemic and still have a facility fire. You can still have, you know, there's cyber attacks going on. We're hearing about them all the time, ransomware, uh, information security issues, uh, fires, floods, we see all this stuff on the news every day. Mm-hmm. And HR is not going to be able to manage that stuff. Absolutely. You know, they're, they're not there. You know, and, and risk management people, for the most part, even though it's changing, don't look at those kind of situations. There are uh, a lot of the risk management people I know, a majority of what they focus on is the bottom line and the financial side of things you know, and any risk that can impact that. They're not looking at, um, you know, we walk down the hallway and find this cord going across the hallway that's plugged in uh, without knowing that what's plugged in on this extension cord is plugged into a server that deals with customer, you know, facing mm-hmm. applications, you know, those kind of things. You know, they're, they're not looking at that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm hearing the, the same kind of things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think it's it's an important um, moment for us as an industry to reflect what this really means to us, because I am concerned that we don't, um, we aren't we aren't really doing as as much as we could to advocate for our position. And so, 
Uh, I'll t- I want to talk a lot about that, but I want to really tie this back together again with the pandemic and the opportunity that we have as a as a as an entity to stop and really think about what have we learned. So, I've really begged. Not everybody's done this, but I've begged all of my clients to, at periodic levels during the pandemic, like every three or four months, really do an interim after action reports. Talk about what has worked and what needs improvement. Uh, because, you know, there's a zillion things that have happened in the last, uh, how many months has been now, 15 or 16 months. And you, if you haven't been keeping notes of this, you're not going to remember anything. And one of the things that's really important about this, and if your listeners haven't done an after action report, man, they need to start. Because mm-hmm. you need to have a foundation of information and data that you can go back to to talk about the role of what was happening with business continuity, the things that worked, the things that didn't work, because many things came up, it was a problem, they got fixed. Nobody really captured it as like, oh, that didn't work. So the idea is that we need to have some mechanism. And the other really key aspect of that is, as you just mentioned, we have to think about what if, what if in the middle of the pandemic, something else would have happened. And there, that happened in many parts of the world, whether it was typhoons or hurricanes or wildfires or earthquakes or any other kind of incident, things still happened. You still needed a continuity plan. And in fact, hopefully people have actually thought about looking at their continuity plan from the perspective of having a lot of people work from home because I think what's going to happen now is that people are going to make the assumption, bad word, right? Assumptions are really bad, mm-hmm. that business interruption occurred at my office. Not a problem. I can send everybody home. Well, depending on what that business interruption was, was it a widespread power outage like the great ice storms in Canada? Or was it an earthquake or some sort of regional power outage? Okay, what happens when you try and have all your people work from home with no power, no internet, no cell phone coverage? So I think our profession needs to really look at, crack this open. If indeed employers are saying, hey, we really don't need a much of a business continuity plan because everybody for work from home, somebody better be working in that company to explain why that's not the solution. No, it opens you up to even more. Yes. Yes. Not less. Yes. Yes. And, you know, just talk to cybersecurity professionals. They'll talk about all the concerns of people working from home from a cyber perspective. Think about, you know, and a good example of this is when we had Hurricane Sandy in 2010 in the United States, which went all the way up to Canada eventually. Um, Many, many of my clients in the New York, New Jersey area said, not a problem, before that occurred, because our strategy is to have people work from home. Okay, there was no power in at least a thousand miles of the United States for a period of time. There was no working from home, and they had never taken a look at their continuity plans about can't work at the office, can't work from home. What does that mean? And so, if people have many locations, they could, of course, amend their plans to say, oh, you know, if we're down in New York, uh, Los Angeles is going to pick it up. But mm. are there plans for that? Have they practiced? Do they have exercises? Do they know that they're going to do that when, uh, you know, New York just falls into the water? Yeah. No. Do they have capacity to even do that? Right. You, know, you can't just double somebody's workload and expect, oh, everything will be fine. No. Right. Right. So what I would say just broadly about this issue is I think we need to seriously look at this because I think once the pandemic is, well, we're not, it's not going to be over for a long time, but once people get back to business as usual, whatever that means, mm-hmm. uh, based on the hybrid models, et cetera, that I think what you're going to see is that there's going to be even more loss in our industry because of this. Uh, many companies are going to look at tightening their expenses and we are just a big expense item on a spreadsheet. So I think this goes back to looking at uh, writing a solid, really good after action report that really looks at the things that worked and things that needs improvement and looking at your risk profile and asking the question, if any of these things happened on the risk profile, 
in my hazard vulnerability analysis, and the strategy now is to just work from home, would that work? It because, remind, yeah, go ahead, finish off. No, I, I think the thing is that executives are going to come up with those ideas. They're going to launch them. And if you are flat-footed, shame on you, and you likely are going to lose. It reminds me of uh, Y2K. All that planning, right. Y2K didn't happen. So all of a sudden, a lot of contracts and roles were you know, re- removed from people were reassigned, contracts were closed, um, no new positions were created because uh, the biggest thing we had to face didn't happen. Right. And then a lot of companies all of a sudden were caught flat-footed mm-hmm. on 9-11. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Oh, my God. You know, Absolutely. And we, we literally went from here to here and then back up again, and then it came down. Now we're up at, you know, we've had pandemics or epidemics, you know, and, and pandemics happening since then. And that we've, you mentioned different disasters. Uh, what's the island? St. Vincent's uh, had a volcano. Even volcanoes right. you know, are, are, are happening. So to, to say or to even think that something else might not happen is unbelievably short-sighted. Oh, my gosh. Incredibly short-sighted. You know, the other thing I want to say um, about this, this issue, uh, really looking at what works and what doesn't work and looking at your continuity plans as compared to your hazard risk analysis, if the answer is just work from home, which is what it's going to be everywhere, by the way, then I think what needs to happen is hopefully in your business continuity management program, you have a good governance document. And part of that governance structure is a business continuity steering committee, which mm-hmm. is comprised of relatively senior people, I'm not asking for the C-suite, but, you know, relatively senior who have, and you run, and you, you as the person in continuity planning, run a really good, tight, effective meeting. You meet probably once a quarter and you look at very high level things. What I'm talking about today is one of the things that you should be on your next agenda of your business continuity steering committee, which is, okay, we've, we've worked from home for 15 months or longer, Many people are thinking that that is the solution. It's not. And, and to really be prepared to argue the case. So I am begging and pleading with your listeners that they need to be on this project now because it is going to be in their face sooner rather than later. And one last comment. Uh, I've had quite a few uh, business continuity management steering committees and in every place, I made it almost mandatory. The member of that steering committee had to report to a member of the C-suite. Mm-hmm. Which is really important nothing because otherwise lower. it goes nowhere, right? Yeah, nothing lower. Right. On that note, we've come to the end of our second segment. We are talking with Regina Phelps. And when we come back, we're going to be talking about that value on investment. We'll be right back. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. You are listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fuller. 
Email your questions to info at stone-road.com. Again, that's I-N-F-O at stone-road.com. Now back to Preparing for the Unexpected. Welcome back. We're talking with Regina Phelps. Regina, let's talk about um, what you mentioned at the end of the last segment, the value on investment. You know, um, this is one of my favorite topics to talk about. And I've actually, I think the first speech I did on this was in 2004. <clears throat> I am actually been, been very concerned about how we describe ourselves as an industry and in particular, how we describe what we do to senior leadership, maybe even your boss. So, for example, many times I'll be at a conference or people introduce themselves to me and they'll tell me what they do. And, you know, their, their sort of tagline will often be, you know, like when the bad thing happens, they're going to be really happy that they have this program. And then I, before the pandemic in particular, which, of course, we didn't activate the plans anyway, but uh, I would always say, that, well, when was the last time the bad thing happened? And what do you think the common answer is, Alex? Uh, usually uh, nothing bad has happened yet. Right. Okay. Yes. If that's how you describe what you do, which is you're going to be so happy you have me when the bad thing happens and uh, it hasn't happened yet, which is really common. I mean, most of my clients don't have any activations year to year. Mm-hmm. There might be little, little bumps, but they're little bumps, right? And so I think one of the things that you said about, you know, steering committees and executives is really important that, you know, we need to make sure that we do a good job of describing what we do and that we market it. Now, most of people I talk to and they say, market, I'm not a marketing person. I'm not in sales. And I think you need to be. (laughs) You need to be selling what you do every single day. Because if the answer is you'll be really glad you have me and this program when the bad thing happens and the answer is it hasn't ever happened or it was like 16 years ago, then many executives will say, hey, you know, just like after nine, after the, um, you know, uh, Y2K, right? It didn't happen. So why do we have all this stuff? Yeah. Right. So I think that is what people need to think about. And so the first time I did a speech on this, I think people thought I was a little crazy, but uh, I believe it's going to come in spades after this pandemic slows down and people are going to really need to be thinking about what they need to do. So when I wrote this speech originally in the early 2000s, <clears throat> one of the things that I looked at uh, was trying to understand, is this an issue with anybody else or just us? And it turned out that Garner actually uh, developed this concept of value on investment, Early on, like maybe 2003 or four, something like that. And part of it was, is that they came out with it. It's not just us that has this problem. There are many industries that don't produce a tangible product, if you will, that have a hard time trying to convince management that they're important in a downward cycle, let's say. Mm -hmm. So a good example is things like associations. So you think of any membership association when money is good and whatever, many times people will belong to many things. When money's tight, it's like, well, what has it done for me lately? Think of things like education, pursuing higher degrees, same thing. There are many different entities that fall into this sort of category because return on investment, which is what many executives will ask you, well, what's the return on investment as a business continuity? Well, you can certainly point to your BIA and say, well, if the bad thing happened, and we went down, uh, we would be saving X number of dollars. Well, that's kind of a bad argument because you get back to the same conversation. Well, when was the last time that happened? Yeah. Right. So uh, Garner came out with this concept of value on investment. And the issue is, what is the value that that service provides the organization on a daily, regular basis? And so I've actually challenged many of my clients to say, okay, well, what do you provide besides a continuity plan and exercises? I mean, what else do you, I know phone list, right? What else do you do? And they often are flummoxed. Like, I don't know. It's like, okay, well, this is your homework assignment. So one of the things I've convinced, tried to convince people in many speeches I've done and as well as my clients is the first thing you have to do is you need to get a, bunch of your colleagues together in the field or associated fields and really do some brainstorming. 
what do we provide people every day in this company that provides value? Not saving money because we can only prove that if the bad thing happens. Right. But what do you do that provides value? That's a different way of looking at it. Have you thought about that before? I have, actually, <clears throat> because over the years, there's always the struggle of how you get executive buy-in. Right. So trying, <clears throat> if we can't show value, there won't be any buy-in, you know, and, and to your point, you know, nothing has happened. Well, then, if nothing's happening, what are you doing? Nothing? Right. <laughs> right. And I, and I think, I, I have to tell you, because we did not activate any plans, we didn't use business continuity and, and many of my clients didn't even use their crisis management process. You know, they fell into this, as you were mentioning, you know, it was managed by HR or whatever. It's like, really? Oh, my God. So a lot of stuff that we, we as an industry make, people didn't use. So I think we are really at a disadvantage at this point. So I would say to your, <clears throat> I'm looking at my notes here. I've um, all the speeches I've done before. I'd say the first thing I would say to all of your listeners is, you need to do a brainstorming session in your organization with your like-minded colleagues about what, do you, what value you do provide. And what I would really say to you is that you need to get the right people in the room and you need to brainstorm this topic. And you need to throw every idea out there, whether it sounds goofy or not. So you need to establish this and then you need to really massage that. I have, some, I have eight ideas about what I think we do that provides value, but you probably will come up with a lot more. Mm-hmm. that are specific to your organization. But you need to really, first of all, I'm not kidding. Get people in a room. Brainstorm this idea. If you're if you the only sole practitioner, brainstorm it with other people in other companies. About I, I was going to ask you that. If you're the, the sole person, what should we do? Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. yeah, bring in, bring in some, some, if you're able to get some uh, allies. Right. Room. Well, just think about think about associations, for example. I mean, look at look at all, all the associations in a DRI in Canada that you could get together. You could do um, a great DRI meeting, as an example, in Canada or here in the United States. We have uh, ACP and other organizations, mm-hmm. Burma, et cetera, where they could actually get people together and just do nothing but brainstorm. What does business continuity provide us? You know, what does it provide for the company? Uh, that's the homework assignment of this talk today. Uh, and I do have eight ideas that are very straightforward, but I, I pray that you're going to come up with another eight or 10. And so what I want is I'm going I'm to toss each one of these out and we can talk about them. And I want to make sure that I'm sensitive to our time here as I look at it. So yep, we have 10 minutes. Yep. That's what I thought. So uh, the issue related to um, the first one is regulatory compliance. There are many industries there where there are no regulatory compliance issues. There might be some tangentially. Now, certainly in the area of finance, there's lots of regulatory compliance, compli- um, com- compliance issues, as well as in healthcare. But even people that are uh, traded on the stock exchange, there are some ways you can tie our work into that. But what I would say to you is that, first of all, is to look at, are there any regulatory compliance issues that you might need to check the box? Oh, I have a business continuity plan. Oh, I have a BIA et cetera, et cetera. Do any of your clients have regulatory compliance related? I've things? worked for a lot of banks and yeah, they all do. <laughs> but I, I, I want to add, even if they're not a client, I haven't been with them or you haven't been with them. A lot of them better open up their uh, eyes and ears to what's happening with the Bank of England, with their financial control, financial control analysis, I think, the FCA report, yep. where there's new controls being put in place. And a lot, if you're doing business in the UK, you've got some potential changes coming along. So you, yes. have, you have more regular, regular regulations to follow. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that can also be not just people that are based in the UK, but tangentially providing services to those that are. Yep. <clears throat> Absolutely. Absolutely. It's kind of like the long, the long uh, tail of GDPR, right? I mean, it's the same kind yes. of thing. Yeah. So I think the regulatory or contractual, the other thing could be contractual compliance as well. So you might have SLAs, for example, that say you have to have a certain amount of uptime or that you can only have so much downtime, especially if you're providing a key product for somebody, you know, your software as a service or a third-party vendor, you know, what are those, what is in those SLAs that you need to make sure that you actually are complying with? So it's mm-hmm. the regulations from the government or any governments that you might touch or where you might, they might be, uh, your customers might be located, but also what are the contractual obligations you have 
through your um, um, uh, sales system. So and I think that's a huge met- You can create metrics to measure all of that too. Right. Oh, and absolutely. It is con- you can turn around and say, look, here's how we're meeting it. All our contractual obligations are being met through these metrics. Which then ties to my second option. So after regulatory and uh, contractual compliance, the next one is actually competitive advantage. Mm-hmm. So what you raise is a really good one. So if companies are looking at two or three different entities in a, in a bid and you are able to demonstrate your continuity resilience program as being a selling point, that's a huge plus. Uh, you can talk about downtime. You can talk about the kind of resources that you have and what kind of plans you have in place. That's a huge competitive advantage. And I think now even uh, companies that have not been as sophisticated in selecting vendors and thinking about what is a um, resilience issue. Now, many people have a sense of that much greater after the pandemic and the work from home, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that the idea is, you know, the idea is that you could actually be delivering something that is a competitive advantage to your sales and marketing team, your executives love to talk about a competitive advantage, and that could certainly be one of them. Um, the third one, of course, which is a huge issue, which is uh, the issue of brand and, and, and um, reputation management. That is not just business continuity planning and the ability you have to recover your systems, but also then you can tie that to another part of what lives under our umbrella, crisis communications, that you have got well-organized uh, plans. And all you have to do is start to point to some of the entities that have had ransomware attacks, other types of issues where they did not handle it well at the beginning and the impact to their brand and their reputation. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a huge selling point. And for executives, the number one thing when I talk to executives about a cyber related issues and concerns is their biggest concern is their reputation and brand. And so what you're doing and the work that we provide is going to really be able to help ensure that that reputation and brand is not tarnished. So that's a huge issue. Yep. Could be just, you know, what I see, uh, Cristiano Ronaldo, uh, <clears throat> big soccer player for anyone who doesn't know who he is, moved two Coke bottles out of his way at a press conference. The same day, Coca-Cola's value went down by $4 billion. <laughs> all he did was move two Coca-Cola bottles. Their brand, you know, their brand is being tarnished just by right. one thing. Right, right. Right. And so I think, again, if you, when you look at what we do for a living, and remember, it's the entire umbrella of things, emergency response, business continuity, technology recovery, crisis communications, crisis management, all of that stuff is what we do, that you need to understand that we are all about reputation and brand management. Yeah. And, and that's, again, reminding people of that big umbrella of activities. So I think that's really important. We have four minutes left Yeah. Okay. I'll talk fast. The the fourth one is risk identification. So ideally when you're doing a hazard risk analysis, when you're looking at things, and just as you mentioned, the cord going across a a walkway, which is attached to a server, that's our huge risk, right? Mm -hmm. Our our job is to really ID risks. So that would be my fourth suggestion. The fifth one is operational improvements. You know, sometimes the work that we do does result in operational improvements. People realize that they can streamline certain things that they've always been doing because now they realize they don't need to or it can be folded into something else. That's happened with several of my big banking clients who swore they had to do things in this order, in this way. And then by the time they went through some continuity planning and some exercise, they realized, well, no, we don't need to do that. We're like, wow, okay, that was a big savings, right? Mm -hmm. So it was an operational improvement. The sixth one I have on my list is knowledge capture. What does that mean? Well, you know, people are moving, you know, the job, people are moving jobs in North America right now, right and left. They're leaving their jobs because their company's not being flexible or they're sick of their job after the pandemic and they're moving someplace else. That knowledge walks right out the door with them. If you've got a really good continuity plan, many of those things should have been captured. And your SOPs, right? So you capture that knowledge or when people retire or they have a baby and don't come back or whatever, right? My seventh one is that you have increased robustness, that you're able to respond more rapidly because you are a fine-tuned oiled machine. And that's really important. And the last one is actually deeper knowledge. And 
I've actually had many clients of mine who have had their eyes so wide open uh, by doing a really well-crafted cyber exercise. Ransomware is a good example where they think they understand what's going to happen, but then they really don't until either the bad thing does happen or you have a well-crafted exercise. And so increasing that knowledge, making it a deeper experience is one of the things that we should be doing every single day. So those are my suggestions. But let me just say, well, the other thing I would say about that is that your job, our job, we could talk about this for a long time, Alex, but <laughs> our job is really to market it. We have to sell what we do. Now, I know you're not in sales, but you are. And so how can you actually sell your programs effectively? Um, do you have any suggestions on that? I have some, but I want to look at our time. Oh my gosh, you're about Yeah, we got a minute and a half left. <clears throat> okay. So I'll, I'll, I'll end with one suggestion. Find out what your executive team is most interested in, whether it's ransomware or anything else. Then what you need to do is you need to set alerts on Google Alerts. If you don't use Google Alerts, Google, Google Alerts, and type in ransomware, the type of industry you're in, let's say it's pharmaceuticals. Great. Okay. Everyday Mama Google is going to send you something that appeared anywhere in the world. And you're going to find out information about maybe your competitors might have been hacked. Maybe that this is actually a big issue in a particular aspect of your industry. And then you happen to send those articles to some of your executive sponsors, reminding them, educating them. And I have lots of other suggestions about how to market it, but we're out of time. But this is what your group should be thinking about. And we'll talk about maybe this next month. Yeah, you never know. <laughs> I will never know, right? 30 seconds left. We're, we're almost on time here. So, <laughs> Regina, thanks very much. I, I, I really do hope we continue this talk uh, next month, especially about the future and this uh, uh, value on investment. I think it's a key topic because there's also people issues associated with this coming Absolutely. out as well, which I think a lot of people kind of forget that six months after it's over or somebody declares it's over, there's going to be different impacts that are going to be happening afterwards. And I think it's Absolutely. really important, you know, so thank you once again, I really appreciate your expertise and of course your time sharing all your knowledge with us. You're welcome. It's always great to be with you, Alex. And I look forward to continuing this conversation next month. Yep. And to everybody listening, stay prepared, everybody. Thank you for joining us for preparing for the unexpected. Please tune in for another edition featuring your host, Alex Bullock, next Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We'll see you here next week.